Hello and welcome to Climactic, a podcast on the Climactic Collective, a group of independent podcasters from across the range of the climate communities of Australia and New Zealand. Every week on Climactic, rain or shine, we either produce or feature an episode of a climate-engaged podcast. This could be from one of the shows on the Climactic Collective or beyond, and you'll always find a link to the show we're featuring at the top of the show notes. My name is Mark, and I'm the publisher of the Climactic Collective and of this show. And if you ever have any questions, I'm always reachable at hello at climactic.fm. This introduction was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I wish to acknowledge this is stolen land, and sovereignty was never ceded. This week on Climactic, I record this intro from the banks of the Mullamullam Creek in Millamullum Park, near the East Link Freeway in Narm, Melbourne. I'm on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and this land is beautiful and unseated. I'm recording on the mic of my MacBook, showing you two can do podcasting from pretty much wherever, using whatever you've got. And I'm very happy to be recording from an outdoor, beautiful setting right now, Ahead of this episode, all about the insidious, destructive power of natural gas development and exploitation in Australia. This is a webinar from the Beyond Gas Network, an amazing group of grassroots climate action groups from across Melbourne and across the country. One of which is founded by a longtime listener and friend of the show and myself, Belinda. I'm so happy to be bringing you a talk from Saul Griffith, noted inventor. MacArthur Genius Grant Award winner, and personal hero to several of my friends, as well as two other great speakers, which I could look up and give a good intro to, but that's coming up in the episode. It's a great webinar. You're going to get a lot out of it, and it's especially valuable information at the moment in the election cycle to combat the lies of the fossil fuel industry and the politicians they support. Standing on unceded land surrounded by ecological resource and beauty, it couldn't be more obvious to me the lie of gas development. So I hope that you, in the next few weeks of this election cycle, get the chance to get outside, go somewhere gorgeous, and fill your tank with energy and conviction and knowledge that renewable energy isn't just ecologically right or economically right now, but self-evidently right when it spares land like this from development. Enjoy. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining. We're going to kick off in a few moments. My name's Naomi. I'm going to be helping to moderate this evening. Uh, Just to let you know that we are recording tonight's uh, meeting. I'm going to help moderate this evening. My name's Naomi Hogan. I'm joining as a 
another concerned community member um, and also as a volunteer board member at 350.org. I'd like to start by acknowledging country uh, from wherever we are. If we're on Australia, um, we are joining from unceded Aboriginal land and I'd like to pay my respects uh, to elders past, present, emerging here on a Awabakal country where I'm joining from and I'd also like to acknowledge uh, the incredible activism and leadership by First Nations people right across this continent and the world when it comes to standing up to damaging fossil fuel projects. Uh, tonight we're going to hear from a range of fantastic speakers uh, who will give us insights into the, the problem we are seeing with gas here in Australia, the expansion uh, that we're seeing, and also some of the fantastic opportunities that we have here in Australia uh, to get off gas. This is a really important time to have these conversations. We know that there's an upcoming federal election uh, and it's a really good opportunity to, to learn and to equip ourselves with the information and the knowledge that we can share in our communities and with any candidates uh, who are active in the election going forward. In order to set the scene for us this evening, we've got a very special guest, Raymond Bubbly Weatherall, uh, who's a Gamilaroi man, Gomoroi man, um, and strong, proud uh, supporter of his community and country, who is on the front line of a Santos coal seam gas project right now. So in order to set the scene of, of what we're facing here in Australia, uh, I'd like to pass to Raymond to say hello and share the situation that he's in, and then we'll go to our other speakers as well. Uh, yama Naomi, Yama everyone. Um, I first like to um, pay my respects to the um, to my ancestors, the Gumarai people, and also to the lands where I am right now, um, Southwest Sydney on Farwell lands. Um, obviously, it's never been ceded. Well, first, I want to acknowledge everybody uh, who's coming to this space tonight to um, actually have a yarn about coal seam gas. I know through the last couple of years, um, with COVID, people have had to revert to um, doing Zooms and it's sort of here in um, Wada, Sydney, where, where I reside, um, we've sort of been having Zoom meetings to sort of build a movement in regards to... Um, the Narrabora Gas Project, um, where Santos proposed to uh, put out 850 gas wells over the next 25 years. Um, I've been involved in the fight against Santos probably from 2015, 2016. Uh, there were a couple of bush camps out there that uh, when they were building um, Leewood, the water treatment facility, um, where they're obviously uh, trying to get rid of the toxic water and uh, that's where they'll sort of have the salt uh, that comes out of there and I think there's probably about 85 trucks a day that they that will have to do that each time when it's fully operational. Uh, one of the most significant sites in New South Wales um, with rock carvings and grinding grooves and other things that have been found there like water rings as well. Um, so it was very significant for for us as Gumroy people to hold ceremony there. Um, I heard that Santos were going there um, so I drove from here in Sydney probably seven or eight hours, and um, I spent sort of a week in Maureen um, sort of trying to get other people uh, to come out there so that we could pretty much throw them off there. Um, there were probably about 25 to 30 of us that went out there, um, very strong people, and we did throw them off there. Um, they did have, obviously, other Gumroy people uh, who had brought them there um, to sort of 
have a yarn, you know what I mean, where they come in and just sort of uh, put our feelers. Um, we were quite angry with them bringing them there to that area. So Katrina Humphreys, uh, she was the mayor of uh, Moree at the time, the Shire. Um, she held a public meeting the next evening and pretty much everybody uh, within that space um, in, in the Shire said no, they did not want coal seam gas um, in the Moree Shire. So they actually took it south. Um, it's 100 kilometres south to Narrabri from Moree. So Moree is probably about 115 kilometres south of the uh, Queensland border where the McIntyre River is the border there with Gundawindi and Tumalar Bogabilla, another very significant place for us as Woomeroy. So I followed them there to Narrabri and I'd seen that there were people already there because the infrastructure was already being built. You see, back then the, there were five Aboriginal ancestors where the Narrabri Aboriginal community actually put in a native title claim. Um, and through those five Aboriginal ancestors, they were already talking with Santos and obviously there are, there's a whole lot of mining up there where um, they were talking to Whitehaven Coal as well as Itamitsu, that's Bogabri Coal, and other mining companies that were there. Um, because we put in a blanket claim after that in 2012 or something like that, they, they around that time, it overrid their, their claim. So pretty much they had to come back to the whole nation and talk to elected representatives first and foremost to negotiate a deal. And um, So it progressed. We voted out the old applicants and stuff like that. That was something that happened within our nation. And then in 2016, I was voted in as an applicant and uh, the old ones appealed, then it went to court and uh, we got the verdict in our favour um, in 2018. So from that time, um, we've sort of been talking to Santos, as they call it negotiations. I don't call it that at all because offering breadcrumbs to people for their land where you're going to put down 850 gas wells is, uh, is an insult. So we pretty much treated it as that way from the time that they first came into the room. They were very disrespectful. Uh, they showed disdain for us as you know, the, the rightful owners of that land. We sort of asked them to leave the room and then when they came back in, like we'd all said when they were out of there, look, we're not going to take no deals here. Obviously, they have to go back to the nation to vote, but um, we will try to prolong it as long as we can within the negotiation so that maybe we can find out some way. I do a lot of work outside of that, um, outside of that space in regards to people who I live with down here or I sort of know through the activist circles, through Black Lives Matter, you have the Nitty Nanas here in Sydney and uh, there's other various other various spaces that you go into. I mean, look, the one saying that we have as Aboriginal people, when you're born black, you're born political. So you have to take a stand on all issues that, um, let's say, impact on our people on a daily basis. So the one thing that I wanted to do was to try to get mining to stop up there as well as um, cost and gas not to go into the country. I mean, we've given approval to two solar farms, there's a wind farm that's going to be um, just north of Willow Tree um, near Nundle on the way to Tamworth. Um, so if anybody knows New South Wales, it's sort of, if you're going fully north um, at Willow Tree, that'll take you up to Moree, or if you keep on going towards Armadale, you go through Tamworth. So it's sort of a high range there with a great dividing range, and they're putting them probably 60-odd um, wind turbines. So we have approved and done cultural and heritage assessments in regards to you know renewable energy. Um, but we have about 30 active mines on our country, underground as well as above ground, open cut. So we see it's doing the way that the world is going at the moment with climate change. We we sort of, as a nation, um, voting against Santos two weeks ago, 
we voted 162 to 2 and four abstentions against Santos with, we did not think it was going to go that way. A lot of us who were with the no vote because there was a lot of talk within that week that sort of people were going to, you know, go with them. But I think it was through good conversations that we had outside of the meeting that it sort of swayed people and getting up within the meeting as well, um, just uh, sort of sharing our thoughts and feelings in regards to the detrimental effect that, you know, Colseam Gas would have on the Pilliga Scrub there. Um, it's a very significant site for Woomeroy people in regards to our dreaming stories and song lines. It's, it's in the middle of our nations. Kuna Barabin actually put the telescope there because it's got the best viewing of the Milky Way anywhere in the country in regards to that's why they put it there. So if you put 850 gas wells in there, it's going to be like daylight um, when they're all going all at once, those flares at night. So we, we, we sort of went with that and told them, you know, our people, you know, exactly what would happen over 25 years. Now, you have to understand too, look, there are 30,000 Gumroy people across this whole country. Um, so that's going to grow in the next 25 years when they um, it obviously drop down those 850 wells. I think they offered us about five to 10 bucks each over that 25-year period, uh, five bucks a year. Um, with the cost of living, and I, I know that everybody probably heard with uh, you know, Scott Morrison the other week, if you can't rent, uh, go and buy a house, whereas... Uh, people are struggling. Sorry to interrupt, it's Naomi here. Um, I'm conscious that, I, I, you know, we could talk all night about this incredibly important <laughs> issue. No, no, absolutely. It's it's so good to hear from you in terms of setting the scene. This is real life. This has been a huge time for Gomorrah people. I do just want to say, you know, there's so much celebration of the strong no vote that came from Gomorrah people. In terms of the next step, do you want to give a quick plug for what's happening next week? Because sadly, that's not where the story ends and Santos uh, wants to continue to try and strip your native title rights to push forward with that gas project. Thank you, Naomi. So this Friday um, in the Federal Court in Brisbane, they're holding it. Um, the National Native Title Tribunal will sit down and sort of hear both sides of the arguments in regards to um, whether they approve or, or they don't. Um, I will tell people that it's probably a 99% rate against Aboriginal people across the whole country in regards to the National Native Title Tribunal, where they go with the proponents on most occasions. Um, the one conversation that myself and a good brother of mine here, Paddy Gibson, have been saying to people is that we're due for a win. Um, I really think that if the Gumroy win, it will inspire other Aboriginal people across our whole country to say no, you know, don't. I mean, the, the structure in WA is a lot different in regards to why and all the way that they have it there where they get royalties. We don't get that over here. It's very different. With, um, so we had to say no. I mean, there, there, there is a point where we always say that you can't put a price on culture and heritage, you know, and, and your land is worth more than any amount of money. Money doesn't make you happy. It doesn't hug you. It doesn't tell you it loves you like your land does when you go home, take your shoes and socks off and walk in the beautiful earth, you know, so... For our grandkids or grandchildren's grandchildren, we we have to take a stand to make sure that um, we fight for our country. And the the resounding no vote was fantastic. And I do hope that um, Tony McAvoy is acting on our behalf in the National Native Title Tribunal. And uh, he's uh, a very good Native Title lawyer. So hopefully, um, yeah, we get a win. And thanks for listening, everybody. I know I sort of rambled on a bit. You wanted a bit of history. Well, history Thank in this you. country hasn't been too good for Aboriginal people. So I thought I'd, you know, end it tonight there with a good one. Hopefully we win. And 
Thank you. Thanks, Bubbly. Thank you. All power to you, absolutely. And anyone that can get to Sydney to support uh, on midday this Friday uh, down at the uh, Federal Court, go down and, and show your respect. And, uh, yeah, all power to you. Thank you so much. Very uh, we'll, yes, very friendly bunch. Uh, thank you. All right, uh, let's keep moving and thanks again. Uh, our next speaker for this evening is Bruce Robertson. And Bruce has done a fantastic job over the years in speaking out strongly about the problems with uh, gas. He works with the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. He's been an investment analyst, a fund manager and professional investor for over 36 years. He's jumped on as an expert witness before a number of government inquiries into energy issues, and he joins us tonight. Thank you, Bruce. Just, just starting off straight away um, with the bad news. Um, globally, methane emissions are growing at the fastest rate um, in 2021, a COVID recession-affected year. They grew at the fastest rate since records began in 1982. Now, why is this important? Well, methane emissions make up around 25% of all greenhouse gas emissions come from methane. And uh, what we're seeing this year is another strong year of growth. Now, I don't need to remind all of you that um, basically the Paris Agreement means we've got to reduce emissions, not continue to increase them at ever higher rates. The problem we have is just a simple measurement of the amount of methane in the atmosphere. Recently, a study was done in the US, very recently, in the, in the New Mexico part of the Permian Basin, um, which is, um, you know, the biggest onshore gas basin in the US. And that basically showed that the emissions were six times as much as the latest estimate from the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, in Australia, there is systemic fraud going on. Basically, in Australia, emissions estimates are taken from Jazeera, the gas industry funded and gas industry controlled arm of the CSIRO. They've measured emissions from Queensland CSG uh, fields from hand-picked wells given to them by origin. Now, independent measurements have been taken of the same basin, the Shirat Basin in Queensland, and what it found was that the, this, the um, methane emissions were two to three times higher than existing inventories for the region. So, so what we're seeing is we're seeing the gas industry control the measurement of these, these emissions and where they do, they control them and make sure that the, the emissions numbers come out far lower than, than they actually are. And it's not just me saying this. The International Energy Agency has weighed in on this, um, on the emissions accounting fraud that goes on globally, stating that methane emissions for the energy sector are 70% higher than official figures. In all the documents you read out of the International Energy Agency and out of the UN Environment Programme, they all say that to get to net zero, we need to decrease the amount of gas being produced. The decrease has to happen from, from yesterday, um, from 2020. We're now in 2022. And to get to net zero, those lines have all obviously become a bit steeper because emissions have continued to grow from methane. So what does the gas industry say about this? It says it's going to mitigate its emissions with carbon capture and storage, and that's why it can go on having more and more gas fields. But 
carbon capture and storage isn't an effective method. And it's not effective for two reasons. Firstly, um, basically the, 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 the projects have trouble in capturing the gas. If you have a look at the overall emissions, you know, most of the emissions actually occur, occur when you burn the gas, not when you produce it. And I think that's the key point, right? So they're only talking about mitigating the, the emissions of, of actually um, producing the gas. And even then, they're not very good at it. Uh, if we have a look at what the IPCC says about it, it says that CO2 storage is not necessarily permanent. There's physical leakage from storage regular as well as is possible, either by gradual long-term release or the sudden release of CO2 caused by disruption of the reservoir. Now, the, the, how does this happen? At Moomba, for example, there are over 2,000 wells about 2,400, between 2,400 and 2,600 wells have been drilled in that field over the time of history. And, and, and what's happening is, is that unfortunately um, those wells rupture over time. And so we're likely to see large escapes of CO2 over time in these carbon capture and storage projects. Another mitigating strategy they talk about is blue hydrogen. We can knock this on, on the head pretty quickly at the moment because it's wholly uneconomic. Uh, one of the things that happened with the big rise in gas prices is that it's made it uneconomic. Um, it has another small problem that's been pointed out by Cornell, Stanford and ANU universities now. Basically, the carbon footprint to create blue hydrogen is 20% is greater than actually burning the gas. So it really is an awful solution. It creates more emissions, not less emissions. I would add that with carbon capture and storage, 73% of all carbon capture and storage projects are for enhanced oil recoveries. So they push the CO2 down an old depleted gas well and get out more oil and gas. So carbon capture and storage is actually an oil and gas production technique. Um, it used to be called enhanced oil recovery, but they've rebounded it now, now this nice climate-friendly sort of thing, carbon capture and storage. But it is actually just a method of producing more oil and gas. So in the end, it produces more emissions as well. The last one is offsets that have been thoroughly discredited by Professor Andrew McIntosh. He was a former member of the Emissions Reduction Fund Expert Reference Group. So he was actually involved in the creation of these Carbon offsets in Australia are, are, are created by the Emissions Reduction Fund and are called ACCUs or Australian Carbon Credit Units. Basically, 70 to 80 percent of these, um, you know, tree planting projects and, and, and um, avoided deforestation projects, which is one of my favourites, they actually pay them for farmers not to chop down a tree that exists and then claim the carbon credits on that. I've got no idea how that helps Mother Earth, but anyway. Apparently it does, according to these guys. Um, and basically they don't represent real and additional abatement, that they're a fraud. Moving just very quickly to what's happening around the world. The world's been upended by what's happening um, in, in Europe, in a word. The Dutch TTF, which is the exchange that has um, the um, European gas prices, um, it went from under $5 a megawatt hour in mid-2020 um, and closed yesterday at $110. I mean, it, it's just insane, the gas prices in Europe at the moment. And what they're doing is they're buying up all the available gas globally. 
And I think that that's really important to note because what it's doing is putting tremendous pressure and sustained pressure on the global LNG price. And it's making it unaffordable for other Asian nations. Um, Pakistan and Bangladesh basically are going without gas at the moment. Um, Pakistan had three long-term contracts and, and two out of the three have been defaulted on, which means that they actually don't have gas, which means they don't produce power, which means that people aren't able to turn the lights on. Industry in Pakistan is not able to use the gas because because the gas pressure in the pipes is so low because they don't have enough gas. So that's happening in Pakistan. The same thing's happening in Bangladesh and it's happening right throughout the third world. They can't buy gas at these prices. Uh, if we have a look at Japan, they're looking at also um, decreasing their ex imports of LNG by 50% in the power sector by 2030 by starting up some of their nuclear power stations. Um, Qatar is looking at a massive expansion of its gas production. And in Australia, we're seeing the continued decline of gas. And this is really point, important to note. Since 2014 in Australia, we're seeing gas consumption is down 17%. Now, it's down 43% in the electricity sector, and that's while renewables have grown to 32% of the system. So we are seeing declines in, in gas. Um, if we have a look in Asia now, in the first quarter of this year, um, in the Asia-Pacific region, gas is down um, around 10% gas consumption as Europe just basically sucks up all the available free gas. The money is pouring in to solar, wind and water in Australia. And I think that that will end my talk today um, on a positive note because the money is pouring into solar, wind and water and the only things being built in gas, they are all heavily subsidised by the government. Uh, without government money, they definitively would not have been built. And I think that that's a, that, that's a clear uh, message to take away from it. Gas is uneconomic without huge wallops of government money. And that's even gas-fired power stations. So, and I think I'll end on that optimistic note. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. Good on you. And, yes, very important note to end on there, noting that our Australian government is proposing uh, to give billions of dollars to the gas industry uh, in this budget and those to come. So a good one to work to prevent if we can have those conversations. Uh, I will move us along now uh, to our next speaker, Saul Griffith. He is an inventor and author of The Big Switch, where he sets out a detailed blueprint to transform our infrastructure, the grid and households. He's worked in the US where he led projects for agencies, including the National Science Foundation. He was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship for Inventions in the Service of Humanity. Uh, he also worked on the, in the US writing energy policy for the Democratic Party's Build Back Better plan. Saul, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, uh, everyone. Um, I'm also dialing in with COVID tonight. Thank God for science. Thank God for vaccines. I'm glad I got it after the vaccines. Um, and for those of you who emailed me in the last week, you would have seen my autoresponder, which said, now we just need to apply the vaccines that we know exist 
to climate change. And the vaccines for climate change are electrification. So we now not know what it looks like technologically. It's solar cells, it's batteries, it's electric vehicles, it's heat pumps. We know what we have to do. And I'm going to do a quick talk just on the opportunity for Australia to lead the world and to contextualise individual and household action and community action in the, in the global climate context. So uh, I've recently started an organisation in Australia called Rewiring Australia. I also started an organisation in America called Rewiring America. Um, the goal is to promote demand-side electrification as well as clean supply of renewable electricity uh, as our chief strategy for solving the majority of our emissions. Um, it's also an optimistic agenda, and honestly, uh, we now have the technology to make this come true, and I'm, I'm nicknaming it the Abundance Agenda. Um, a journalist from uh, The New Yorker actually applied that to me, and I'm now going to own it. So we can rewire Australia, eliminate all of our climate emissions. We can create enormous number of jobs in our communities. We can revitalize community economics in a really interesting way because buying fossil fuels is a fast way for money to leave your community uh, and support someone else elsewhere. Um, and it's going to save money for households. So it is highly imaginative to say the least to think that we're going to put twice as much shit back in the ground as we currently pull out of the ground. So we should, we really need to emphasize we can't take these negative emission scenarios seriously. We need to stay on these fast early emissions reductions. Now, I think we've had the lack of concrete action for what people need to know they have to fight for and what they have to do. So you can now actually look at, because the timeframes are relevant, we need to do close to 75% emission reductions by 2040. Uh, honestly, we know how to do about 75% emissions reductions. They're the energy sector ones that can be solved with electrification. We don't yet have technology answers for the remainder in industry and cement in agriculture, for example. So we need to prioritize these ones early. And that gives a pretty clear goal of what you need to do in your community. Big rapid emission reductions by 2030, try to get it to zero by 2040. In your community, it turns out we all live much more similar lives than we'd like to believe. We all have water heaters, we all have space heaters, we all have cars, we all have kitchens. There, uh, it was actually nice in the IPCC report today, it was unequivocal. Um, the machines that already exist on the planet today that burn fossil fuels, if all of those machines live out their natural life, that will take us past one and a half degrees. What that just very frankly means is you can never install a natural gas appliance of any kind again. You can't really buy a petrol-powered vehicle or a diesel vehicle again. We need to make sure that all of our purchasing decisions uh, and all of the policy that helps people make those purchasing decisions is now focused on electric end use. So to put it even more bluntly, these curves are with the retirement curves of the machines that already live in your community water heaters last about 10 years so if they all retire at their natural rate we eliminate them by about mid 2030s same with cars it'll be about 2040 if we start today not buying any new petrol or diesel vehicles that's what we have to do that might sound intimidating but i actually had a lovely experience where somebody watched me give one of these talks and they said we've made a, a family pledge to get to net zero and we're going to get solar now because there are good subsidies and it will reduce the upfront burden and start generating savings in the household because Australia's had the solar rooftop miracle. 
Then they plan to electrify the stove and the water heater over the next few years uh, to eliminate the natural gas in the household. Then in 2024, when the battery prices have dropped, get a battery. Then in 2025, when there's more secondhand and more choice in the electric car market, get an electric vehicle. And then after that, they'll focus on their banking and composting and eating well. But I think this is a marvellous expression of the on-the-ground concrete plans that we need now to promote in every Australian household and every Australian community. And it makes it sound much more achievable when you're planning this the same way you would plan for your retirement then I think what people hear when you say, oh, we have to decarbonize now, they mean, they, they hear you say, oh my God, I have to do it tomorrow. And then everyone thinks, well, I don't have enough money for the solar tomorrow and the electric vehicle tomorrow. And we go to a place of guilt and we shut down. Where I think this is a nice place to say, we can plan this out. We can hit our climate targets sanely. So, you know, every, every family might have a different one. It might be an electric bike in the first year, an electric car in the second year, solar in the third year. There'll be a lot of different plans within the community, hopefully like this. And this is how collectively we can hit our climate targets. You might wonder why I'm focusing on this. I think the Australian progress on Australian emissions reduction has been handicapped because we've allowed the conversation to be dominated by fear of what we have to lose, which is our exports and our export industries. But what we actually know we can do now are these green things those household emissions we've just talked about and our commercial sector, which is largely the same. It's heat for buildings and heat for and petrol and diesel for commercial vehicles. Those are the things we need, we can do now. The technologies exist and they are starting to be economic uh, on the back of our rooftop solar miracle. So we have to do that as soon as possible. Manufacturing, construction, agriculture, we have technologies under development to address those sectors. And then we just have to get to the blunt fact that all of the rest of Australian emissions are either because we are exporting fossil fuels or the energy used, the diesel. And you can see the fugitive emissions there that I absolutely agree with Bruce. The world is underreporting by many multiples. Um, but we just have to grapple with changing our uh, export industries to green metals as opposed to be exporting these filthy rocks. So let's return to the community plan. I'm really excited actually that Australia has the opportunity to lead the world. So we are the luckiest country. We have phenomenal renewables that are cheaper than fossil fuels in every market, as Bruce also showed in his last optimistic slide. Um, we have a mild climate, which makes heat pumps highly effective here. We've already had the solar miracle, which has given at least 30% of Australian households a positive experience of what the future looks like. So we now can focus on the 42% of our domestic emissions that come from decisions made around the kitchen table on the back of those advantages, what fuels our cars, what heats our home, where our electricity comes from. So we've got to eliminate the natural gas, we've got to eliminate the petrol diesel, and we've got to switch out these machines as they retire that currently use gas or oil to electric machines. Um, unfortunately, that's not the entire answer because currently the majority, this is New South Wales, the majority of our uh, Electricity still comes from coal in New South Wales, in spite of the optimistic forecast Bruce has, we have to clean this up. And so here's the simple recipe. Achieving zero emissions requires electrifying the demand side machines and supplying with clean electricity. It's actually a shorter list than you might think. It is about electrifying your water heater, electrifying your space heater, most likely with what you might know as a mini split or a heat pump, electrify your cooking, put the solar on the roof, upgrade this main panel here, put a battery on the side of the house, electrify your vehicles as they retire, 
and hook it up to clean electricity from the grid. So there's the clean electricity. We need solar, wind, and hydro uh, exactly to Bruce's spec. This is the simple mantra. So we need to demand of our politicians that they support this as a plan for the country and stop, stop distracting us with things that we know won't work, CCS, hydrogen, etc. Here's the good news and why I actually moved back to Australia to focus on this. I'd like Australia to run the world's first pilot that proves this is economic um, because it will be cheaper here sooner than it will anywhere in the world. One of the ways it does that is because these electric machines are so much more efficient. If you have an electric Ford Ranger on the right instead of a petrol one on the left, it'll use less than one third of the energy to drive a kilometre. Same with your hot water heater, heat pump hot water heater in Australia will use one third or one quarter of the energy of the natural gas machine on the left. There's still tragic high efficiency um, natural gas hot waters being sold as good policy, both in the US and Australia. We just have to call that out as bullshit and say we need to move completely to electric. There's very limited, that middle bar is the very limited win you get by a more efficient natural gas. We just need to go straight to clean electrified things. Same with your heating systems, about one third or one quarter of the energy to heat your home with electricity just through heat pumps. And even your cooking will be about one half or one third of the energy when you move to electric induction away from gas. The biggest efficiency of all though is in cleaning up the grid. Two thirds to three quarters of the energy that goes into the coal plant leaves as waste heat. When we generate that electricity instead with solar and wind and hydro, we don't generate all of that waste heat. And that is, an, and again, that's why Australia could do all of the economic activity we have at much less than one half of the primary energy input to the system. The average Australian household today uses 100 kilowatt hours a day of energy. When we electrify everything, we'll need about 37 kilowatt hours per day per household without having to drastically change the format of our world that's about 250 to 300 percent the amount of electricity we do today so we now know how much we need to increase the supply to make up for the electrification of our demand side machinery the economics of this transition are really good i'm going to go really quickly now so we can do more in the question times average australian household today it's on everyone's mind uh cost of living we're spending about $5,000 a year of the $80,000 that the average household spends on energy. That likely will go up to about $7,000, at least in the short run, with the increase in petrol and oil and natural gas prices. Um, whereas, and you know, this most drastically affects the lowest income. So for the highest income houses, it's about 5% of your weekly spend. For the lowest uh, two tiers, it's seven or eight percent of your weekly spend. So it's a significant distress. We know, however, that every you know this is the good news about what's happening in the world. Every time we double the amount of solar we produce in the world, its cost lowers by twenty percent. Every time we double the number of batteries, it lowers cost by about twenty percent. Wind turbines, every time we double the amount we make, lowers the cost by about fourteen percent. We need three or four doublings each. So we need 10 to 15 times as much solar, 10 to 15 times as much wind, 10 to 15 times as much battery. That means all of these things are gonna fall in price by more than half over the next decade as we go through this energy transition. You can actually model this out and this modeling uses um, economic models from, for example, Bloomberg New Energies and Lazards among others. 
we can take the that existing average Australian household, 2021 might be spending $5,200 a year. In fact, in 2022, because of the increase that was modelled with $1.48 a litre, remember those good old days, petrol, $7,000 a year at $2.10. So that's expensive. If you had to buy all of the electric equipment to electrify your household today, and you had to finance it, you can see that the energy cost is very low because of those efficient electric machines and the low cost of our rooftop solar and our cheap electricity here. Um, but the financing cost for those 1.8 new electric cars, the financing cost of the, um, the battery, the solar uh, kills the economics, but the costs are falling so rapidly. And in fact, they predict in 2025, the cost of uh, an electric vehicle in America, uh, probably that means 2026 in Australia will be equal or below that of the cost of the petrol equivalent. But you can see that the cost of this to the household is going down very, very quickly. And actually in 2024, 2025 is the economic break-even point for the average Australian household. So we're right on the cusp of this electrification revolution. We're right on the cusp of having this improved household economics. By 2030, you can actually see that saving $3,000 a year or, or more per household, um, that is going to be a huge burn for Australian families. Um, we need to be demanding that our politics supports this. We just had a federal budget that proposed $11.5 billion in subsidies for fossil fuels. If you invested in this project as a nation, $12 billion over the next decade would get all Australian households to be realising these savings and those savings would be $40 billion a year. We, we have the opportunity to lead the world and prove the economics of this transition and that's what we should be demanding of our politics. Um, I'll stop there because I think I'm over time. Love it. Thanks, Saul. And I can see that there's already a bunch of questions coming through. I encourage everyone, please keep putting your questions and comments in the chat there and we will get back to them uh, after our final speaker who's up now. Uh, so we now have Freya, who runs the Renewables Not Gas program for Lock the Gate. Uh, it's the campaign to harness the power of local governments and create positive change in energy policy to get off gas. It's already generated a buzz in Victoria and New South Wales and is spreading. Uh, Freya has also worked for state and federal MPs in Victoria on campaigns to protect, prevent plastic and fracking and has worked as a national corporate environmental manager. Thank you for joining us, Freya. Thanks so much, Naomi. Um, and uh, I would like to particularly acknowledge uh, that we are on stolen lands tonight. I'm coming to you from the land of the Bunurong people, where I was born, where I live and work. And um, I acknowledge that these lands are stolen, sovereignty was never ceded, and I pay my respect to ancestors past, present, and emerging, and to all traditional owners joining us here tonight. Um, also, I want to say a big thanks to Beyond Gas Network for putting together this very important um, program this evening. Uh, like Saul, I come to you in solidarity with COVID, brother. I think you did really well. Well done not coughing through your presentation. Um, hopefully I can, uh, I, can, I can match that tonight. So I'm just going to uh, jog through this tonight because I'm really keen to get to the breakout groups at the end and leave some time for Q&A. Um, one thing I would like to highlight is that every time we do tap into another gas well every time we move gas around, every time we use gas, there's an ongoing toxic legacy um, that involved, that includes benzene, toluene, 
carbon emissions, there's um, tars, oils, hydrocarbon sludges, spent oxide waste, ash and ammonia, and we've seen some sites that have been unusable for decades after gas industry has closed up and gone away. So in addition to the impacts on climate, which, you know, uh, in the last month, we've seen Lismore flood twice, and we've seen um, record-breaking temperatures in the Arctic and the Antarctic. Uh, it, dangerous climate, climate change is already here, and we don't have any time left to, um, to pontificate. In addition to the climate environmental impacts, there's also a series of health impacts associated with gas from fracking, um, which can, for nearby residents, uh, cause cancer, skin eye irritations, respiratory problems, damage to the nervous system, cells and blood, endocrine disruption, reproductive problems. And then when we're looking at what happens when we uh, burn gas in the home and in buildings, 12% of childhood asthma is linked to gas appliances in the home. It's estimated to be um, similar to having a heavy smoker in the home in terms of health impacts for children. Um, can also cause migraines, fatigue, skin conditions, cancer, immunity conditions, reproductive health, infant mortality, congenital birth defects, low birth weight, preterm birth. And these health consequences well and truly disproportionately impact poorer households, um, whether these are renters whose real estate agents or landlords won't um, maintain the gas appliances, or if they're people who just can't afford to maintain their appliances themselves. Um, in addition to that, we've also got the human health ramifications of climate change, which are already starting to be felt, particularly in the flood affected areas of Australia right now, as well as people who have survived the fires a couple of years ago. And uh, yeah, so health reasons we can't afford gas, but we can't afford it economically. Um, and I think that Bruce has put a really sort of strong argument there as well as um, Saul. So I won't spend too much time on that, but I think that it is worth noting that um, the gas industry is basically a parasite on the public purse. They suck so much money out of um, federal coffers and they give so little back in royalties or tax um, that it is um, economically true that we can't afford the gas industry in any way, shape or form. Um, and particularly we're finding now that more and more households are defaulting on their gas bills and we're seeing disconnections escalating um, through non-payment of um, gas bills. People just can't afford it. On the East Coast gas mask market in the last um, six months, I think it is, our gas bills just saw a 25% increase. So um, it's there's there's no economic argument for it, either at a federal level or at the household level. Um, and what about jobs? You know, these, um, if you're looking at this chart now, this is actually now out of date that ABS hasn't updated their statistics. Um, in terms of jobs and growth, it's just not there in the gas industry. Um, since these figures were released by the Bureau of Statistics, we've seen the oil and gas industry lose jobs by 10% at a time when renewables have been seeing a remarkable uptake so we can only imagine that the updated statistics are going to be even more stark in terms of the difference in employment between renewables and the gas and oil sector. Um, it's interesting as well to note that um, the gas industry delivers very few spillover jobs in terms of indirect employment. Um, uh, we've seen research that um, 
the economic impacts of CSG in the Surat Basin have shown that non-mining spillover employment has been negligible in local retail and manufacturing. And at the same time, um, there's been 18 jobs lost in, in agriculture for every 10 jobs that have been created in that area by CSG. Uh, so there isn't an, an employment argument for gas. And uh, finally, in terms of energy security, gas shortfalls looming on the East Coast are entirely manufactured due to us exporting gas. It's just a nonsense, um, but it certainly has been very handy in highlighting just the extent to which gas is a volatile uh, energy source. We can't rely on it. Um, uh, centralised energy networks like gas distribution networks are hopelessly inefficient. They're constantly leaking. Um, they're vulnerable to national disasters and terrorist attack sabotage. And, um, and uh, something that we don't really look at very often in Australia is the extent to which gas companies and facilities are owned by foreign state or private owned interests. So how does this happen? And how is it that we are throwing money hand over fist at the gas industry? And it's pretty straightforward, it's donations. By fossil fuel companies writing federal policy. In the 2020 financial year, we saw $1.35 million come into um, LNP and ALP coffers from fossil fuel industry. And we saw $10.3 billion go out to them in subsidies. The following financial year, $1.15 million came in to federal party coffers and $11.6 billion was handed out to um, fossil fuel industry in the last budget. At the moment, with the, with the latest budget figures, it's a $22,000 a minute subsidy to the fossil fuel industry. That's, and to look at it another way, um, Fossil fuel industries are netting a nearly 1,000% return on investment from their donations. Um, but really the way I, I find it's interesting to look at it is this is also a, um, a very legal money laundering operation because for every $100 that is given from the public purse to the fossil fuel industries, $1.14 is given back to um, the Liberal, National and Labor parties between them. Um, so it's interesting to view it through that lens as well. Yeah, royalties and taxes at the, um, have been outstripped by subsidies. So in, in other words, the amount of money that we give to fossil fuel industries is $3 billion more than we receive back in royalties and taxes from fossil fuel industries. On average, fossil fuels pay just 10% tax and many companies, including Origin, Chevron and Santos, paid no tax at all in the last financial year. There's an element of state capture as well in the way the federal government allocates funds to states for um, infrastructure and energy projects. We saw in 2020 that um, the Victorian government was still maintaining a moratorium on onshore gas. And the federal government basically said, if you don't open up onshore gas, we're not going to give you any money for major energy projects. Um, at, at the same time, they had um, run the same line with the New South Wales government and the New South Wales government had capitulated, said they were gonna open up more, um, uh, more gas fields. And we saw a $3 million allocation of funds to the New South Wales government. So it really is just that straightforward. 
We also see things like, as I saw in the chat earlier and, and have seen before, Santos logos appearing on police cars. Um, it's really just a matter of time before we realise that the gas industry is a parasite on politics and it's up to us this election to determine whether or not that parasite is going to kill off its host. Um, there are a number of new gas projects nationally. Uh, this is by no means extensive, but it's a, again a quick jog through. Um, so we've got the Beachloo Basin um, being opened up for four and a half thousand gas wells by 2040, and that's a project that's being run this Santos Tamboran Origin Falcon Oil and Gas and Empire Energy. Santos are also um, wanting to drill in near the Tiwi Islands in the Barossa Basin. Um, we've got 40,000 wells slated for the Canning Basin in Kimberley, I'm opening up the Channel Country, some more by Origin Energy. Just those three projects alone, the emissions represented by those projects um, equals the 2019 emissions by the entire United Kingdom. So we really can't afford it. And I want to make it plain that over the next three years, um, 2025, we need to have cut our emissions so significantly by 2025 that there's no way we're going to be able to achieve it with business as usual. This coming term of parliament, um, federal parliament, is going to be critical in the fight for climate change. So what are we going to do about it? Um, there's a couple of things to remember about campaigning at election time, um, particularly if you are part of a registered charity. So if you are, charities are allowed to engage in advocacy or campaigning as long as their efforts further their stated purpose and what they were set up to achieve and as long as those activities are allowed in their constitution. Um, also, any advocacy or campaigning charities um, campaigning that charities conduct must not have a purpose to promote or oppose a political party or a candidate for political office, engage in or promote activities that are unlawful or engage in or promote activities that are contrary to public policy. This last one is a concern because that can basically mean speaking out against public policy. Um, so you do have to be really careful if you are part of a registered charity, how you speak about truth to power and how you campaign. And we saw a really strong example of that. I don't know if anyone's seen the bin stickers that have been um, popping up on wheelie bins around Australia. Um, they were put out by the Smart Energy Council. Um, fantastic idea. And uh, Smart Energy Council is a registered charity. So when they printed up a bunch of bin stickers that said, um, chuck them out and bin him with a picture of Scott Morrison. Uh, they were kind of flying foul of the charity um, charity restrictions. So yeah, I don't know if anyone noticed that very quickly the bin stickers were discontinued by um, Smart Energy Council and a new organisation opened up called Smart Voting and they're not a charity. <laughs> so they're able to um, produce these bin stickers all they like without having to worry about running foul of their charity status. Um, uh, so yeah, it's just it's really good if you are part of a chari registered charity just to be a bit circumspect. The ACNC does have a web page, and I'm happy to provide links um, that um, that can be sent out with the recording of this um, for anyone who wants further information on anything that I've discussed. Um, so 
not registered charities have so much more freedom. Um, having said that, please make sure that all of your electoral communications meet the legal, the legal authorization required um, for election period materials. Um, you can find out more at the Australian Electoral Commission website. They've got a whole list of the different um, things that they need you to say if you are campaigning. Um, usually at, at the bare minimum, it will be um, name of the person authorising it and their address. Um, but absolutely go and check that out if you are going to be making particularly um, printing materials and publishing materials. And um, yeah, don't get yourself sued. Um, uh, as has happened recently to an asylum seeker activist who spoke out against Dutton. So just unless you've got the budget for it, but they, you know, like there's a chance you might not win um, if you do get sued and it can be very expensive. So ask yourself if you want to hand them that on a plate. So I'll, um, I'll just very quickly scoot through various tactics. Um, we're probably all familiar with um, direct action, like having a rally, um, dropping a banner, um, letters to MPs. Um, some people are trying event invitations. So you send an event invitation to your MP. This way it turns up in their inbox and in their calendar. It's, um, it's a great way to make sure that you notice. Um, sending issue surveys to candidates, asking them how they would um, support certain policy um, areas and initiatives. Of course, there's always advertising, um, meet the candidates for um, social media and mainstream media messaging and um, and always letters to the editor and comments under online articles. Um, so the most effective campaign plays the long game. Remember that it's not just through an, an election period that you um, uh, run your campaign. You need to follow up afterwards. If you have a commitment from a candidate, make sure that you stick it to them after they've been elected. And if they haven't been elected, um, it's, it's a nice thing to follow up with a unsuccessful candidate and just commiserate afterwards. Um, and between elections, make sure you foster your relationships with MPs, whether they're in government or not. You can get a lot of really useful information. Um, finally, coordinated campaigns are good campaigns. So make sure that you're working in coordination with other groups or individuals in your area who have similar interests and make sure that you're not all reinventing the same wheel. Thank you, Freya. That was a great closer as well in terms of where we head next. Uh, there was one for you, Saul, that I saw a few people asking around getting the politicians involved, getting policies uh, that can help renters and low-income families and small businesses uh, to be able to make those um, upfront investments in their plan. Um, and also an issue of where, and I don't know who can talk to this, in South Australia and around Australia, where it's compulsory to connect the gas infrastructure, particularly for new homes. Um, if you've got some comments on that. Well, fossil fuels has had about 100 years to write the rules of the road. And those rules of the road are written into federal politics. And I think Freya gave us a good summary of some of the darker side of how they've corrupted that. Um, they've written the rules of our energy networks They've written our building codes and our zoning codes. Honestly, an unbelievably important piece of work to do, even if, you know, it's unclear who should win the election because it's unclear that we have an opposition worth, you know, who, who really is going to do all the work required. Um, but the work, you know, let's, let's assume that we have a fabulous set of independents holding the balance of power and we're rolling up our sleeves and getting to work. One of the pieces of... 
And I'm just going to say all of the things I'm not allowed to say all the way through the election, including defaming Angus fucking Taylor, and I don't give a fuck. And don't be scared. Um, the, uh, the reality is we need to go and fix all of those regulations. Otherwise, the savings, the, the cost savings won't be realised by this ramp public. You still have a disconnection fee, for example, where I live when you use your last natural gas um, that is grandfathered in, even though I didn't buy the natural gas connection to the house when I bought the house. It came with it. So we have to get rid of all of those pieces. We have to change the rules of the NEM um, and we have to stop sub stop all the subsidies. So there's a huge amount of work. As to how do we help people afford it, I think the states are sort of on the right track. It's just not quite enough yet. So ACT is now subsidising electric vehicles. Uh, a number of states are offering rebates and subsidies for heat pumps and electric water heaters. And there's obviously still the government subsidy for rooftop solar, which is an Australian success story. We need to continue and double down on those things. It would be fabulous if every dollar being spent on fuel excise uh, rebates was being spent on electric vehicle rebates, for example. Um, so we need to fight for that. And the question I'm sure a lot of the people were asking is um, we, we have to make sure that we the, this is going to end up being a credit issue. So the top 10 or 20% of households, if they can afford a foreign import luxury car they can already afford all the solutions they're just not doing it so for them it's just like get your rearrange your morals for the people in the middle who are on a mortgage they'll probably be able to finance most of these things against a mortgage but the bottom 30 40 percent of households are really going to struggle renters are going to struggle to realize the savings um, we need active policy interventions there to make sure that they can afford it if we don't this will be the cultural wedge that will be driven on this issue. That is already a tactic being deployed in Australia. It's de being deployed even to worse effect in the US. Um, so uh, I don't have clean, concise answers for exactly what that policy looks, needs to look like, but we need to be out there fighting for it and agitating any of our newly elected representatives to make sure that we are, um, that we are meeting the needs of all Australians that transition equity is a critical issue and it's something that's been recognised by the Victorian government in the Victorian gas substitution roadmap. So that's heartening at least because the truth is that the last people left on the network are going to be covering the cost of the whole network and it's simply not fair if that's the poorest people in our community. Transition equity is something that needs a task force. It needs to be managed at all levels of government. My name's Peter Moraitis and I'm um, one of the conveners of, of this um, Beyond Gas Network. And uh, I, I'd really like to thank um, the speakers and the moderators and everyone who's been involved in uh, putting this very quickly put together webinar on. Um, the idea behind the webinar is to really prepare us for the coming election and to make it possible that we um, that we, we that we're prepared with the kinds of questions that we need to ask the candidates and that we've we've got the confidence to ask those questions. Thank you everybody for coming. Um, we've got a great collection of ideas and we'll we'll put them together in in uh, in a document over the next few days and we'll email everybody. Um, we can't promise that we'll um, we'll be able to collect everything together but we'll do our best. Um, I've said thank you to the speakers and 
Um, and, and I just should say that our Beyond Gas Network is a completely voluntary network of climate action groups. And um, anyone who wants to join is more than welcome. And, uh, and we hope that you do so. So thank you very much. The last thing I want to say is we'll just keep the, we'll keep the line open. We'll keep the chat open. But we'll just formally finish um, the, uh, the, the meeting now. But we'll stay open for another 15 or so minutes just to continue the conversation. So thank you and, uh, and, and, and good night if you want to go, but feel free to just stay and chat away. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne, to learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Hear